Welcome to Cannabis Health Radio, a podcast where we share stories from people around the world who are using cannabis as medicine. The information is meant to raise awareness about the health benefits of cannabis, which should not be taken as medical advice. Now, here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. One of the most aggressive forms of breast cancer is what's called triple negative, and it has a poorer prognosis than other types of breast cancer. So exactly what is it? It's a kind of breast cancer that does not have any of the receptors that are commonly found in breast cancer, estrogen, progesterone, and a protein called human epidermal growth factor, or HER2. And joining us from Belfast, Northern Ireland, to tell us how she dealt with her triple negative breast cancer is D. Manny Mitchell, who healed herself using cannabis oil along with an holistic approach. Dee, thanks for doing this. We greatly appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Dee, take us through that day in March of 2017 when the doctors told you that you had breast cancer. What was that day like for you? Oh, well, it was kind of surreal because... I think it was two weeks before I had, well, yeah, it probably was about two, three weeks before I found the lump. The lump just literally just sprouted up overnight. It wasn't there. Then I woke up the next morning and it was there. That That's how violent it was or vicious it was. Um, and it was a big lump. It was, a, well, it was, when you say big, it was two centimetres. But in terms of you could feel it and you could see it, see it, it was big. So I had this lump and I, you know, obviously you go to the doctors and you just think that they're going to say, yeah, it's just a cyst or whatever. Um, but the look on their faces was that, no, this isn't a cyst because you kind of know that doctors know what they're feeling, don't they? So then I was fast forwarded to an ultrasound and a, um, a mammogram. And then before they, you know, they told me that, yeah, it, it's, it looks more than a cyst. Um, we just need to get it checked out. So we need to have a biopsy. And as soon as you hear the word biopsy, you kind of know it, it's, a, it's a bit more serious than a cyst. So, and, and I must admit, as soon as I felt that lump, I kind of knew. I instantly knew. And I've always said this from day one that I knew as soon as I felt that lump, I knew it was malignant and I knew it was cancer. I think... Every cancer patient has it within them. It's their, it's their gut feeling, it's their instinct that they know that it is cancer. So, uh, yeah, fast forward those two, three weeks, and then um, I'm sat in front of – I had the biopsy, obviously, and then I'm sat in front of the oncologist. And it was just all really, really blase. It was just like, oh, yeah, you've got triple negative breast cancer. And it just – the way she said triple negative breast cancer, it was because I didn't know anything about breast cancer. I just thought breast cancer was breast cancer. I didn't realize you had millions, well, not millions, but I didn't realize you had dozens of different types of breast cancer. So I was trying to, at the, the moment that so she was saying these words, I was trying to get my head around the fact that she said you have triple negative breast cancer. And I'm trying to comprehend with that fact, think, thinking to myself, oh, so it's not just regular breast cancer. You know, I didn't know you could have a different type of breast cancer. And I think that I, I, I'm, I'm sure because it was all a bit of a daze, all a bit, a, bit, a bit of a blur, because as I'm sure every cancer patient can say with their diagnosis, it's just a blur. You are there in person, but you're kind of not there because 
it's all just so surreal. When when they're talking to you, you don't imagine what they're actually telling you. And I think I actually said to her at one point, what, triple negative, what does that mean? Um, she got her little pen and paper out and she was doing all these diagrams and telling me this and telling me that, which meant nothing to me. It was all just going over my head. And then I think she paused for a minute and she said something like, it's, it's the, the worst type of cancer you could ever imagine. And I just froze as if to say, well, thanks. You know, thanks for telling me that. And thanks for telling me that so abruptly as well, because she just blurted it out. It's not something that you want to hear ever. It's not something that you ever, ever expect to hear, to be honest with you. It was, it was shocking more than anything. It was, it was a true shock. One of the things about uh, cancer that we've talked about is that people who have cancer are in shock initially. Uh, your mm-hmm. your body may be there, but your mind is elsewhere when the doctor tells you you have cancer. And, yeah. And that lasts not for a day or two, but I've heard you say that it lasts for two weeks, at least two weeks. It, well, to me, it, because it was, it was kind of really, really, it, it's so surreal and so strange is that from the minute I felt that lump when, you know, I woke up in the morning had a shower and I felt it. It was not there the day before. And the minute I felt that lump, I knew instantly in myself, my gut feeling told me, shit, fuck, sorry, this is cancer. I knew it was cancer. Even though, you know, I'm getting everyone to feel it and talking about it and whatever, and everyone's saying, oh, it could just be a cyst or it could even, it could be a lump, but it could be benign, you know, it doesn't need to be malignant. I knew in myself it was cancer. So, you kind of think that you prepare yourself, but you cannot prepare yourself for when you're sat in front of a, an oncologist or a doctor or whatever, someone in a white coat telling you that you've got cancer. And it, it really, really is, it's just shocking. And even though you know, you don't know because nobody knows because you don't know what type you have. You don't know what stage you have, what grade you have. You don't know what they're going to tell you. So as much as I prepared myself for that meeting, I was no way near prepared when they told, when, when she told me what the situation was. And yes, you are in shock. And I, I must say that I, I probably was in shock up until the point I had that all clear because your feet don't touch the ground. Your mind doesn't stop focusing. You're constantly thinking about, you know, stuff. You're in, you're in guilt. You're in neglect. You're, there's so many emotions that go through your body. That The first emotion that you think of is, I did it to myself. It's my fault. What did I do? You know, what did I do wrong? What could I have done to prevent this? You know, it's all my fault. There's just so, so much guilt. And it's hard. It's really, really hard to deal with. And the whole point, the, the, you know, going through the whole process and the whole point of it, nobody ever asks you how you feel, which is quite bad. And, you know, in even if you have, um, you know, you see the Macmillan nurses and what, and even if you have support, nobody actually asks you how you feel about your diagnosis. Nobody cares. Nobody gives a shit. It's kind of like, this is your diagnosis. Go ahead and and deal with it but um the fact of the moment was yeah I was in shock and I think I was in shock up until I had the all clear and in my head the way I treated it I treated it as if I had a cold um I very I didn't tell many people I only told a few close people that I I had cancer 
um, some people that I told and, you know, because I was healing naturally, I didn't lose my hair or anything. You know, people automatically think when you have cancer, you have a bald head because you lose your hair, obviously, with chemo. So when I, I did tell a few people that I did have cancer, it was like they didn't believe me because they were looking at me and they're thinking, well, you know, you look all right. You're not you're not thinner than normal and you still got hair. It's, it's just surreal how society portrays how you were supposed to look if you have cancer and it's so wrong. So, yeah, I was in shock. And the way that I dealt with it was I didn't allow myself to believe that I had the worst case of breast cancer, the most aggressive case of breast cancer. And from reading upon on, on studies and, you know, reports from my type that very rarely many people survived my kind of, uh, my type of breast cancer after five years. So, I didn't want I didn't want that in my head. So the way I, I, I succumbed to it and the way that I handled it and dealt with it was that I just got a flu. I've got a cold. I've got a virus. And I'm just going to deal with it and get rid of it. I never once said to myself, you've got cancer, ever. Because I knew that as soon as I said that, I would crumble. And I didn't think that I would ever be able to um, get over it in a Do sense, if that kind of makes sense. Sorry. What was uh, their, the doctor's uh, suggestion as to how you treat this? Were they going to do the typical chemo? Uh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. It was kind of like, yes, you've got grade three, triple negative. First, they told me all the negatives, negatives in the triple negative. It was like, you've got this cancer. It's very, very rare and it's very aggressive. And not many people live past five years from this cancer. That was that's what they were telling me, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, right, okay. But then she said, so, but if you listen to us and you have the treatments, then you'll be fine. So my head's still in a spin, and I don't actually think I even spoke much. It was kind of just a nodding phase, mm -hmm. kind of. You know, you don't speak because you can't speak because you don't know what to say. <laughs> And I, the only thing that I did ask was what stage I am, because I, I don't know. I just, that was the only thing that I felt like I needed to ask. But anyway, she said that, yeah, you need to have a lump. No, first she said you need to have uh, chemo. It was 12 months worth of chemo, ACX and, and Torax. You need to have 12 months worth of chemo. And then after the 12 months of chemo, then we will have an operator, we'll, we'll perform surgery and we'll, we'll remove the tumour. Then after the tumour's removed, then you'll have six months' worth of radiation. So in total, it would have been two years. But then, I'm not, so I'm sitting there thinking, because I'm racking it up, because in my head, I'm thinking, well, I've got kids, I've got a career. So in the back of my head, I'm trying to think to myself, how long am I going to be out of business? Do you see what I mean? You know, I've got kids, mm -hmm. I've got a career, I need to know, am I going to be in and out of hospital? I need to think logically, like, how's my everyday life going to, going to be different? And then, so I'm trying to gather, gather this all up in my head. And then she says, oh, but, you know, that two years, that could end up being five years because some people get sick and some people this so that 12 months worth of chemo, that could end up being, we might need to take a pause. It depends how sick you are. Then we, that could go on to 18 months. So she wasn't really sure. All she knew was that I had to have this amount of chemo, this amount of radiation and then surgery. And then, you know, my question to her was, why am I having surgery in between? Why can't I have surgery first? Because if the tumor's there and you can feel and see the tumor, 
why can't I just get rid of the tumour first? And at first she says, oh, no, 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 that's not protocol. And I thought, okay, well, I don't really give a shit about protocol. I want to know about my own health. You know, why can you not take out the tumour first and then we'll have treatment after? Because if the tumour's out, then there should there should be less of a chance that the cancer is going to metastasize. As, as Seeing as this cancer is so aggressive, as they kept telling me, the way I was thinking was if the cancer is still going to be inside me for 12 months, as I'm going through 12 months worth of chemo, then that tumor could be getting more aggressive and metastasizing. But, you know, she wouldn't listen to anything that I had to say. And all she kept saying was, no, 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 you have to have 12 months worth of chemo first then we will consider consider um, taking out the tumour, then you have to add the radiation. And I just I just wasn't happy with what she was saying because it was all protocol. It was all textbook. It wasn't anything to do with me as a patient. It wasn't anything to do with my situation. It was all as this is what happens in the textbooks and this is how we're going to treat you and this is what you're going to agree to. It was very um, directive. It was very operative it was like this is what you're going to have to do and if you don't have it then you probably will die Mm -hmm. in in not so many words that's what she says to me if you don't have it then your prognosis isn't going to be as great in so many words Mm -hmm. d when you went home and you analyzed your options which uh weren't good options when you went home and you thought about it, tell me the story about your sister and her liver cancer. Yeah, so three years before I was diagnosed, my sister had liver cancer. Now, when you say liver cancer, you kind of type, you you stereotype the individual with liver cancer as there was a heavy drinker, which most people do. My sister never drank. She never drank at all. She might have had a little glass of sherry at Christmas, that was all. So when my sister had cancer, liver cancer especially, it was a shock. It was a shock to everyone because you're kind of thinking, how have you got liver cancer? You don't smoke, you don't drink. She was the cleanest, purest person that you could ever imagine. She did everything. She, you know, Everything was cooking. Her cooking was clean from scratch. She never had processed food. She never drank. She never smoked. She was the purest, holier-than-dale person you could ever imagine. Obviously, it was toxins that were getting in through her. You know, people we didn't, we didn't realize that at the time. So when she had liver cancer, and uh, so when she was diagnosed, she was diagnosed. Uh, I think she was stage three. She was diagnosed, and the doctors had said to her at the time that you will probably have two years left to live. And they uh, said to her, "Yeah, you can have the chemo, the radiation, and whatever." And She went through all that. And then at the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, hang on a minute. So I was really confused because I was thinking, well, you're saying she's got two years left to live. But is that two years left to live with or without the the treatment? You know, is that two years with the chemo or if she doesn't have chemo, how long has she got to live without? And this is what I was asking my sister because I didn't live with my sister at the time. My sister lived in the UK. I lived in Spain at the time. So... I wasn't there on hand, if you see what I mean. Although I did give her a lot of support, but I wasn't there to inquisit the, the doctors. So I I used to say to her, I says, well, can you question them? If you have treatment, 
what's your prognosis? If you don't have treatment, what's your prognosis? But my sister was scared to ask them because she was kind of like, well, no, 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 you know, they know that they know what's best for me and they know what's what's right for me and if I'm sick, I'm sick and I need to have this treatment. So you kind of just go go with it and you roll with it. Um, I think in the two years she had 12 different sessions of chemo and it destroyed her. It absolutely destroyed her to the point where I went to visit her. It was kind it was it was a few, only a couple of weeks before she passed and I went to visit her in hospital because she was in hospital a lot of the time. She was having chemo, it was practically every month, she was having radiation, she was having surgery after surgery. And she was in hospital a lot of the time. And I went when I went to see her, the last time I saw her, she was in a hospital. And she was just crumbling away. She was just so, so sick and so ill. And, and she said to me, she said, Dee, she said, the cancer isn't killing me. And I'm looking at her thinking to myself, well, you look like death right now. So if it's not the cancer that's killing you, what's killing you? She said, it's the chemo. She said, the chemo is killing me. She said, it's not the cancer, it's the chemo. And I kind of thought to myself, well, how's the chemo killing you? You know, chemo is the, the one that's supposed to be keeping you alive. If the chemo is killing you, why are you even having it? And she just said, well, because there's no alternative. This is what we have to do. She says, otherwise I would die. Um, and I kind of thought to myself, well, if you didn't have it, you probably would die anyway. So what was really the point? After that, after I went to see her and I went back to Spain, I think she she, she passed away about three days after that, and and it, it was horrible. It was excruciating, and and ever since then, I always thought to myself in the back of my mind, geez, you know, if ever ever I'm unfortunate enough to get cancer, I would never ever have chemo. So that again was always in the back of my mind when I had my diagnosis. But just bringing me back on to my sister is that when she was diagnosed. They diagnosed her and they said to her, you've got two years left to live. And it was literally two years to the day that she passed away. So mm -hmm. I'm kind of thinking, did they know two years from giving her the treatment? Because they know that the treatment is so vicious and so detrimental to your health that they knew that within two years that that treatment would kill her. Or did they know that the cancer would kill her? Do you see what I mean from those yeah. two? I mean, to this day now, we probably would never, ever yeah. not. No, but, but you know, I know it's interesting that they've certainly uh, done studies, et cetera. And with, you know, mm. back in the day, almost always when you were diagnosed with cancer, you were told you have two to four months or you have, yeah. two, you have five months. And some patients would die to the day, literally yeah. to the day. And it's like how much of that is the person buying into it and actually sort of yeah. setting themselves up for their own death yeah and it's also if you if they say to you like if they say to you, you've got six months left to live when six months comes you're just thinking oh shit i should be alive should i be dead should i be alive mm -hmm. psychologically that must be freaking messing with your brain yes because your brain's thinking should i be alive should i be dead i'm sure i should be dead right now you know you just don't so how on earth can a doctor play god and say that you've only got two years left to live. It becomes it's a self fulfilling. So, so it becomes a self fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Prophecy. Yeah. 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 I'll, yeah. I'll get people calling me up saying, "Well, the doctor says I'm terminal," and I'll say, yeah. "I've got news for you. We're all terminal." Yeah. Nobody's We're all going to die. Exactly. Alive. 
anybody could just walk over the street and get knocked over by a car or just get, you know, anybody could just drop down dead any minute, any minute. So what makes one guy, just because he's got a white coat on, say that they can dictate your future just based on studies? Based on so your, wrong. Sorry, based on your, your sister's um, issues with uh, chemotherapy, was that the turning point for you? You decided, I'm not going to do the conventional treatment, and you switched to other treatments like yeah, cannabis? Yeah, of course. It was partially because from that, from that experience, in the back of my head, it was kind of like, wow, you know, did the chemo kill you? Did the cancer kill you? Her conversation with me always stuck with me forever because when she sat me down and she said, the cancer's not killing me. And I was just in shock by that because I was thinking, well, if you know the chemo's killing you, why are you agreeing to have more? Because she was literally having month after month after month after month. It just didn't stop. They were just continually pumping her with chemo. So that was in the back of my head. But also I used to, when I left school, I worked for the pharmaceutical industry. I was trained to be a pharmacist uh, from when I was 15. I left school and I wanted, well, I wanted to leave school, but my, I didn't want to go to college. My father gave me an ultimatum. He said, if you don't do uh, a college course or a degree or whatever, then you have to go back to school for another two years. And I didn't want to go to school because I hated school. So then I stumbled across a job in a pharmacy and I was working in a pharmacy when I was 15 just because I didn't want to go back to school. So I thought, if I work in this job, I ain't got to go back to school. And then, because I was so good at it, then I got promoted, and then the pharmacy said, right, okay, because I took an interest in drugs, because I was behind the scenes, and I just didn't want to be on a shop floor, basically. I was just thinking, you know what a 15-year-old kid is like? You want to do the easiest part of the, the, the job, don't you, really? So... Then I did take an interest in drugs, and then they says to me, you know, if you want to train to be a pharmacy assistant, then we can put you on a course. And I did that for two years, and then I really liked it. And then before you know it, I was in a another course to be a natural pharmacist. So I was there in total for about six years, and I knew the corruption of the pharmaceutical industry. And this is bearing in mind I was 15, so I left when I was 21. I walked out because I couldn't handle it anymore because it was so corrupt um with the way that you know the, the whole industry worked with how you had the salespeople coming in um trying to to attempt to bribe for a better word bribing the pharmacist to to dispense the pills that they wanted that the the pharmaceutical industry wanted them to 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 prescribe you all would have the doctors as well having regular meetings with the pharmacist because they had a little pact where they would prescribe certain drugs and the pharmacist had to dispense them which was my job I was dispensing them and it kind of got to me and and I just thought you know what you lot don't care about people's health all you care about is the money of the the pharmaceutical industry so that was me at at a very early age when I'm 18 19 taking a step back and I I always knew it was wrong at first I loved it I thought I thought it was glory I thought yes it's the career because I knew how much pharmacists earned and I thought yes that's what I want to do I want to earn loads of money and I'm I'm interested in all this but then when I realized how the industry worked and how it wasn't about health it was basically all about money the pharmacists all they were bothered about was their payoffs and what they could get 
and how the commission that they got. And then they understood that the doctors also got commission. And if the doctors got commission, then the pharmacists will get commission from the prescriptions. And it was just all really corrupt. And at such an early age, I just thought, you know what, I can't deal with this. And I walked away. I walked away after after being in the in the position for five, six years. I walked away and I was only a year off uh, being qualified. Didn't matter to me because I thought, this is not an industry I want to be in. So I left that industry and I went into something else. So I went to sales. And then 20 years later, when all this happens and my, my sister's telling me about chemo, in the back of my mind, I knew that I knew what she was telling me was real. But I was also just couldn't believe that they would do that to cancer patients. And I'm thinking, yeah, I knew that the pharmaceutical industry was like that for, you know, allergies or depression or colds or flus or whatever or whatever. But I just didn't think that they would be behaving like that for something so serious where it could take people's lives for cancer. So that was really... It, it, it was just it was a bomb to my head because I was just like wow you know this shit is is really going down and this is what people are actually doing and and you guys do not give a hell you don't care about these patients that have actually have cancer all you're caring about is your pockets like your pockets because as you know guys chemotherapy pays the highest commission in any drug so when my sister told me that and when I knew that when the, the um, when the oncologist told me my diagnosis and it just happened to have that had the most aggressive type of cancer and she said, well, you can only heal if you have 12 months worth of chemo. When I was sat down in that room and I was being diagnosed, I think I was too scared to say anything. I asked a few questions, but I basically just nodded in agreement the whole way because... Then they kind of pull at your heartstrings and she was asking me, oh, do you have kids? And she knew I had kids because she had my medical background in front of me. And I said, yes, I have two. And it was kind of like, oh, well, if you don't have the treatment, your kids will be motherless. You know, it, it was just so, so detrimental on every level that they didn't give a hell. They didn't give a shit about my feelings and my health. All they cared about was pushing their chemo. Um, because I did say, well, I, I think at one point I did say, well, I'll think about it and I'll come back to you next week. And it was kind of like, no, 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 your cancer is so aggressive. You don't have time to come back to us next week. We've set you out a plan. And then before I knew it, her secretary had given me this long list and it was literally a date and it was an appointment for every day for the next two weeks where I had to be a different scan, different blood test, different ECG, this, that, and ever. Because as you know, when you go through cancer, you have to have a shed loads of, of different um, tests and whatever, mm-hmm. and blood tests. So it was before I, before I could even think, she was preparing me to go here, there, and everywhere. And I think that's what they like to do. They don't want people to think. They don't want people to, to research. They don't want people to have time because they want people to just follow their protocol and do what they want, they, they expect you to do. As someone mentioned on a previous interview, uh, you become a customer, you don't become a patient. Exactly, and that's what it is, because it's not one, not one time did any of the staff, did any of the doctors, and I saw loads of doctors, loads of staff, loads of surgeons and whatever in the whole of those two, three weeks, not one of them asked me how I was. 
Nobody asked how I was feeling. Nobody asked how I was coping. Mm. Nobody asked how oh, my husband was dealing with it. Nobody asked how the kids were dealing with it. There was nothing. There was no support. There was absolutely nothing. It was kind of like, this is what you've got. This is what we're going to do. This is where you need to be. You need to be here, this, there, and then, and you will do that. Do you tell us, oh. how, how, tell us, sorry, Corey, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, how did cannabis uh, enter the picture for you? So cannabis entered the picture because when I, with, with it, at first, you know, I kind of, I, I nodded when she said you could have chemo, even though in the back of my head, I knew I didn't want chemo. I was not going to have it. Not after it killed my sister, I was not having it. But I didn't know what the alternative was because the first thing I did was research triple negative, as I think every person does. When they have a cancer diagnosis, the first thing you do is you get on Google and you type in your type and you type in your diagnosis and you want answers because that's what everybody does. Everything about triple negative was so, so bad. It was so bad. And I think the rate was, oh, I think it was something stupid. Though, don't quote me on these, these statistics, but it was something like, 40, only 40% of triple negative breast cancer survive after a year. And so I'm thinking to myself, and that's with treatments, with conventional treatments. So I'm thinking only 40%. So what's the point in having, having treatment if only 40% is going to live? You know, I want, if it was 100%, then yeah, fine, but not 40%. The, the statistics were way too low for me to be involved in conventional treatments at all. So... All of, the, all of the research I did was about the type, and it was just all so negative. It was like people dying. It's the most aggressive type of cancer, and then if you do get it, then you can within a year you're going to get a secondary cancer, and then you're going to get metastasized, and then it was this and that, and then it was just horrific. And then it was also the pictures of people having can, uh, chemo after uh, after having the first diagnosis, and there was literally no good positivity out of any of it. And I remember I found one woman, and I think she was, I don't, don't even, I can't even remember where she was. She was somewhere like the Himalayas, mountains. It was just a little old lady. She had triple negative breast cancer. Only a few, uh, about 10 years before me, and she healed. She was the only person that healed herself naturally, completely naturally. And the only thing that she said that she used was cannabis. So I'm thinking to myself, right, okay, so this is a woman in in her, you know, later stages of life, in a mountain in the Himalayas, where I know that now I know that, you know, cannabis grows so widely over there and it's so potent there. So obviously she had, you know, she had access to it. But I'm thinking to myself, so this is a woman who's there and she's elderly and she's healed herself with cannabis, cannabis alone and a good diet because obviously there's nothing processed up there in the Himalayas is there. There's no processed foods or anything. So then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, if she can do it, I can do it. And she was my goal. And I set myself on her and I thought, well, she can do it, I can do it. And, that, and that's then when I thought to myself, right, I'm not doing any of this conventional. I'm going to heal myself naturally. So I then I researched and researched. Then I spent all those two, three weeks in Hospital appointments, you know, every if you have an appointment for 10 o'clock, you don't get seen to 11 o'clock, as you know, every hospital. And I was private. 
and I was still late for appointments. Not not me being late, but the, the appointments were always late by the time I got in. So I spent a lot of time in waiting rooms. So while I was in waiting rooms, that's when I used the time to research. And that was the because when I got home, I couldn't research because I had kids and whatever, and I was trying to disconnect from it all. So my research time was always in the hospitals, the hospital waiting rooms. And that's when I came to find that cannabis oil was, well, cannabis in itself and oil. I didn't even know you could get oil from cannabis, but at that time, cannabis was healing so many, so many people. Not many people with triple negative, but it was healing so many people with different types of cancer. So I just thought to myself, right, if they can do it, there's no reason why I can't do it. Um, my husband did mention a few times to me because he was also researching like mad he never he would never sleep because he was so stressed and all he would do was research and he researched and researched and he kept saying to me you need to start doing this cannabis and I was thinking well yeah I'm thinking that too but a lot of you know we we didn't tell many people it was only very very close family and a few couple of friends because they were so against the idea of me going natural and doing cannabis, they, you know, they were saying to me, no, you can't do that. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. You're going to die and all this shit. Your head is just split because I'm torn between, do I just do chemo to keep the family happy? Or do I just say, no, I'm going to do my way. I'm going to do cannabis or because nobody around me, I mean, this is going back three years ago where, yes, Cannabis was around then for healing people, but not as it is now to the extent because people are only just really, it's only been in mainstream media, hasn't it, really, the last two years. So nobody was supporting me, other than my husband, obviously, but nobody was supporting me. You know, I lost a lot of friends. I, I cut off half of my family because they didn't agree with me. They were calling me selfish because they thought that I was going to leave the kids behind because they were all determined that I was going to die. Uh, and a lot of friends as well, like so-called friends that were telling me that, no, if you if you do cannabis, you're going to die. You know, what you do and you've got kids and whatever, you're just being selfish because you don't want to lose your hair. And I thought to myself, losing my hair is irrelevant. That's the last thing I'm thinking about because if I lost my hair, I'll go get a week tomorrow. You know, losing my hair is nothing compared to me staying alive. So, it was small-minded little latitudes like that that made me think, no, you know, screw you lot. I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to heal. I'm going to keep my hair. I'm going to keep my kids. I'm going to keep my sanity. I'm going to keep my health. And that's what just made me, gave me the push that I needed, should I say, to heal myself naturally. And that's what I did. I thought I, I literally stuck my two fingers up to everyone that said you couldn't do it to say, look, you know, if somebody says to me you can't do something, I'll go in there and I'll do it. And that's exactly what I did. I went in there and I did it. So how much oil were you taking, Dee? So with the oil, this was at the time where nobody really knew about doses. And I had a few people contact me and they were saying to me, you need to do a meal of oil a day, a gram a meal of oil a day. Now, I was still working because I still had to have my hold my job done. I was still working. I still had kids. I had young kids. So I had to be up at five o'clock every morning just to get the kids up school and whatever. So I knew that if I took high doses of oil, I wouldn't be able to function. I wouldn't be able to operate because I had no guidance. I had loads of people willing to sell me oil, but nobody knew how to took it. 
to take it, sorry. Nobody knew how it made you feel. Nobody knew how, you know, how you could um, alleviate the high, but, or you could do this or you could do that, or nobody told me that, it, you know, it affects what you eat. No, nobody told me anything. All I knew that is I was getting oil from a supplier and that was it, take it all. I had no dosage instructions. I had nothing. I literally just had this all. I had no idea how to take it. And I'm just thinking, right, okay, I've got this all. Now what do I do with it? You know, how do I do it? Do I rub it on me? Do I take it? Do I? I had no idea what to do with this oil. It was clueless. The suppliers didn't know because all suppliers knew was how to produce it. They didn't know how to take it. So I did Google, and when I was Googling a lot of RSO now um, with Rick Simpson, he, you know, obviously he says try to take a, a meal a day. So I thought, right, I was trying to do that. There was no way I could do it. Obviously, I have a very, very high sensitivity to the THC. So I was taking a drop every night, well, a grain, you know, rice grain, and I was taking it with my – I was trying different alternatives, what best suited me. And in the end of it, the most I could take – was literally about six, seven rice grains of, of oil. And going back by listening to the Rick Simpson protocol, and he was saying that you need to take a meal a day, and I'm thinking for, for 90 days and all this crap. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, I'm never going to heal because I can never, ever get up to get up to a gram a day. I just that, knew I couldn't. That's because, exactly what I did as well. I couldn't yeah. get a gram a day, which is why I waited a year to go back to the doctor. Because... Oh. Back then, there was very limited information, and I figured I must still be sick or still mm -hmm. have I didn't get to that gram, right? But things are changing now. Yeah, I think, you know, things are changing now because more and more people know as well, like more and more people like me and you are there to support people. But right. when, I was, when I was there, there was nobody, you know, there was nobody that could tell me, there was nobody that could advise me. All producers knew or suppliers knew, well, this is the oil. Or we can know, we know how to make it. Yeah. We don't yeah. know how you can take it. Exactly. All yeah. we know is that you need to take a meal a day. And I'm just thinking, well, how the hell am I going to take a meal a day? Like, you know, I tried it and it was just, oh, all I wanted to do was sleep in bed. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't do this because this, and in my head, I'm thinking, well, this is just as bad as chemo because chemo would wipe me out. This is going to wipe me out. All right, it's not as bad, but in my head, I was thinking, I can't have any time off work because I need to make money. If I don't make money, you know, we can't leave. I need to get up. I need to get the kids for school. All right, my husband can do that too. But there was only so much that he could do and I could do. And I, and I thought to myself, I can't physically be stoned out every day. And mm -hmm. when you don't have the guidance, when you don't have people telling you what to do and you don't even know what, what you're doing and you don't even know if it's working – so because I wasn't getting up to a gram a day, I just had it in my fact that I thought to myself, well, I can't take a gram a day, so that I'm not healing. I didn't know. You know, I just thought, well, I'm going to still keep going and whatever. But I, I, in my head, I just kept thinking, I'm not going to beat this naturally. And then there's no way I can take a meal a day because I can't cope with the effects. So I'm just going to take the little doses and just just take it from there, and and it was it was just it, it's just so weird because you kind of you know that you're doing the best that you can, and I was doing the best diet, and I was having all these supplements, and I was having salt baths and meditating, and and being as most positive as I can. But then I was thinking in the back back of my mind that 
I'm not taking enough oil to heal my cancer. So if I'm not taking enough oil, what's going to happen? And then it's just a really, really weird situation that you just keep going because you don't want to do chemo. Like I knew that if I did, if I stopped taking oil, I would have to go down the conventional world. But bear in mind, when I was taking oil, I felt amazing. I felt amazing. My health just rocketed through the roof. I was never, I'd never had bad health anyway, but... I always suffered from insomnia from obviously since I had kids. I had two slip discs in my back, so I was crippled most days where I couldn't walk. When I um, when I slipped my disc, which was 20 years before I was diagnosed, I had six months bed rid- bedridden because I couldn't move for six months. My, you know, the doctor said told me I could never walk again. Mm-hmm. Um, I had allergies. I had loads of health issues where I relied on pharmaceutical drugs. Up until I had cancer and then when as soon as I started taking the oil, it was kind of like I was taking the oil and I was taking loads of other supplements, you know, uh, vitamin C, vitamin D and all these uh, better glucans and uh, turmeric. I was taking a whole load of supplements and taking my oil and eating healthy. To be honest with you, I actually forgot to take my pharmaceutical drugs because I was just taking so many other stuff that I forgot. And it was only like after about a month or a month that I thought, oh, shit, you know, I've not taken my Voltarol, I've not taken my antihistamines, I've not taken my anti-inflammatories. And it just suddenly clicked to me that I've not taken any pharmaceutical drugs since I've been on cannabis oil. And cannabis helped me to sleep, it sorted my back problems out, it sorted my allergies, it literally sorted everything out. But in the back of my mind, I was thinking, yeah, I'm great, I'm thankful that it's sorting everything out. I didn't ever think that it was going to sort my cancer out, especially when uh, the doctors kept drumming into my head that I had the most aggressive type of cancer and, you know, it's so detrimental, it's so life-threatening and the prognosis is never good and, you know, reading reports that triple negative survivors, survivors that don't pass pass the year because if they do pass the year, then they get secondary and then they get metastasized and then before, you know, that it's very rare that a triple negative uh, breast uh, cancer would survive past two, three years. D, you know, uh, sorry, sorry, Corey, go ahead. You know, D, in my experience with working with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women with breast cancer, um, when it comes to, and I'm only talking about cannabis oil now, um, when it comes to uh, treating breast cancer with cannabis oil, the triple negatives are far easier to clear than the hormone-driven ones. Mm, mm. Yeah, I, I think that now, but at the time I didn't know that. Oh, I do well, think no, that, because yeah. they're talking to you about conventional yeah. treatment and the conventional yeah. treatment yeah. Just, fuels, just fuels the cancer. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the most people that contact me now are obviously, you know, there's a huge proportion of triple negative breast cancer because obviously they find my story and they, they want to resonate because I had the same. And most of them, they have chemo and... You know, this is like a year later and it's metastasized. Every person, well, practically, I say 90% of the triple negatives that contact me, they've had uh, conventional treatment and it's metastasized within a year. And you're thinking, and you know, and you think to yourself, well, what is the point of all this chemo? What's the point of the radiation? Obviously, the point is because they want to plow you with more chemo and more radiation. You know, and when they say these studies, I mean, I just read the latest study 
on triple negative only like two weeks ago and it's still just as bad. They're still oh. saying now that they haven't got enough tests and they haven't done enough clinical trials are just pointless anyway. I don't know why even people go for them. But, you know, in surgically speaking, they still have not had tri- uh, clinical trials, they've not done much clinical tests. And you're thinking, why? If it's the most aggressive type of cancer, why are you not ploughing all this money that everybody raises for breast cancer awareness and breast cancer different charities? Why are you not ploughing that money into more research? Because they don't want people to heal no. naturally. Not at all. They don't want people to heal not naturally, not um, conventionally, not at all, because they make their money through drugs. Right. Do you, Do you, sure. uh, I, I want to ask you uh, uh, one final question. I want to ask you... Four months after you started taking cannabis oil, you got the all clear. Tell me what that day was like for you. Well, you know, it was really weird because a week before I had the all clear, um, we had we had a family holiday booked, which was booked before I even before I was even diagnosed. And it was one of these, you know, all-inclusive holidays where you eat and drink whatever you want. And it's a big family holiday. And at the time, I was thinking, I don't really want to go because I was so regimented on my diet. Like, I didn't eat certain foods. I didn't drink alcohol. I didn't do anything. That I thought to myself, if I go to this all-inclusive holiday, I'm just going to throw all that out the window. You know, because I'm not going to be there and not eat and drink what I want. And then I thought I'm so good. But then I also, in the back of my mind, thought, well, this holiday was booked way before I was diagnosed anyway. And then I'm also thinking this could be the last holiday that I ever have with them. And if I don't go and I don't have this last family holiday, I would never, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that thing. So I thought, well, you know, let's just go because, because you just don't know. This is the worst thing is when you have a cancer diagnosis, you don't know when he's ever going to be your last Sunday, your last Christmas, your last Easter, your last holiday, because you always think you're going to die. So you embrace every single moment that you can, and as horrible and as dramatic as that sounds, that's what goes through your head. When you're a cancer patient, you just do not know when you're going to have the next holiday. So I went on the holiday and the first couple of days, I was still strict. And then after that, you know, I thought, you know what? I'm only taking a little grain of rice or a few grains of rice of cannabis oil. In my head, I was thinking to myself, this cannot possibly cure me. It can't because... It can't, I'm not, I can't make it up to a gram a day because I physically can't do that. So then I just thought, well, sorry then, I'm just going to enjoy myself. So I ate whatever I wanted. And it was so weird because I hadn't eaten all these foods for the last four months. I drank as much as I wanted. I, you know, I had wine, I had cocktails and whatever. And I felt really guilty. I felt so, so, like the last few days, I felt so guilty. But at the time, I was enjoying myself because it was family time. I was in holiday. I was in holiday mood. But the last couple of days, towards the end of the holiday, I just felt so guilty. And I just cried and cried and cried. And then I just thought, oh, my God. And also, while I was on that holiday, I had um, I had news that one of my other friends that had had cancer had passed away as well. So I'm just thinking to myself, oh, my God, you know, they've passed away and they've had chemo and they've done all this and they've done everything they should have done and they've passed away. So in my head, I just thought there's no hope for me. What's the point in even trying to fight this? Because if I've got it and I'm going to die, I'm going to die anyway. 
that's just the mentality that goes through your head. And when you have cancer, your your mentality just changes from day to day. You just can't control it. You just can't control how you're feeling. So in my head, I thought, right, I'm going to go back and I'm going to have these tests and they're going to tell me it's metastasized to my brain or my lungs because I've read that triple negative goes to your lungs and then it goes to your brain and whatever and then your bones and before you know you're riddled with it and then you die because that's just protocol in the in the research and that's what everyone tells you so when I went back off the holiday I think it was a few days after I had tests done and I'm just because I had pain as well I had a lot of pain in, in in my breast and I went to see my oncologist and I explained to him, I said, look, I've got a lot of pain. You know, first he said, how are you? And I said, well, I've got a lot of pain in my breast because that was what was worrying me was that I had the pain. And he said, yeah, he said, but you was on holiday. And I said, yeah. And he said, yeah, because you was in a hotter country, which I was. It was a hotter country than I was. And he said, that's what happens. He says he can't, he couldn't explain it. But he said, where your scar tissue is, he says, whenever you are in a hotter or colder climate, you will always get pain where the scar tissue is. He couldn't, he, he just could not scientifically or medically explain why. But he said that all of his patients, whenever they go to a hotter or colder country, they always have pain around their scar tissue. So he said, don't worry about that. That's normal. But then he was reading my uh, notes and he just said, I already read your notes anyway, because obviously he had the, the results before I'd got walked in the door. And he says, and I just want to tell you that you are absolutely amazing. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He says, you are cancer free. And I'm like, what? He was like, you have no cancer in your body at all all these tests confirms he says you are NED which is no evidence of disease and I and I was just like shocked so so shocked because I thought he was going to tell me right you've blown it and you've got cancer here there and everywhere and now we've got to do chemo because one, one thing I did say to him was that when he was trying to push all the chemo and radiation for me and I said no I'm not doing that I'm doing it naturally and because he kept trying to push it on me, I said, look, this is the deal. Let me go away for four months. If I can heal myself in four months, then fine. If I can't heal myself in four months, then granted, I've lost and I will then do conventional treatments. So when I was going back in there, I was in my head, I was thinking, well, I tried it. I failed it. Now, what else is there? What, you know, what's the alternative? Um and I was thinking, I still wasn't going to have chemo, but I was just rather going to just think, well, I'm just going to roll with it and see what happens. But in his head, he was thinking, well, you promised that if you didn't do chemo in four months, you was going to come and have chemo kind of thing. But no, he, he says to me, he says, you are, you are, he says, you've got no evidence of disease. He says, I am absolutely ecstatic. And he even says to me something like, I can't believe this has happened. He says, because this just never happens. So he showed me the results and whatever, and I kind of knew anyway from seeing the results to myself. But he he was just, this was a guy, this was an oncologist that was so, so determined that I couldn't heal naturally. And he was so determined that the only way I could stay alive would be is if, I, if I had 12 months of chemo and, and six months of radiation. He was just ecstatic. And he actually gave me a hug at that appointment and 
and I walked away because I was so ecstatic and I, there, there was no point in me staying there any longer. And he, when I left the, the consultation room, he says to me, he says, D, he says, because whenever I spoke to him about cannabis oil, up until the appointment before that, he would always say to me, it's inconclusive. And I was like, well, how can you say it's inconclusive just because you haven't done your own studies? And he would say, no, it's inconclusive and there's no scientific or uh, measure that cannabis cures cancer and da, 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 and all this all this crap. And every time I mentioned cannabis oil, he would always interrupt me and change the subject because he just did not want to talk about it at all. And when he, he that, that meeting when he told me I was clear and he hugged me and he said, all I'm going to say to you is carry on doing what you're doing. And I said to him, oh, what, you mean the cannabis oil? And he just kind of winked and I just left the room then. That's, so, that's a fantastic story. That's a, yeah. that's and a, that's he, a great story. And he knew in his heart that cannabis oil was the one that healed me, mm-hmm. nothing else. Dee, uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you and meet you, and uh, you have an amazing story, and we're going to share it with the world, and hopefully you'll get some feedback from, from folks who have listened to it. And uh, we want to wish you well in the future because you're coming up to three years of being clear. Mm-hmm. And- three years of being clear. And and the reason why I went public, because obviously I wrote a book, but the reason why I went public about this was because when I had triple negative and I was researching, it was all doom and gloom. There was nothing. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, even people that had conventional treatment, they were dying after five years. You know, I think the success rate was something like 20% after five years. It was ridiculous. This is why I thought, well, you know, why why am I going to be a, another statistic? So the whole point of me going public is to tell people that, you know, the doctors don't know everything. They only know their scientific studies. And, all, and I'm sure all, most of those are fixed anyway. But, you know... That there is other yeah. ways to heal and you don't have to go down the conventional route. And just because they tell you that you have an aggressive type of cancer, don't fall for it. No. Don't, absolutely don't fall for it because it's, you know, you've, you've got to think as well that they're salespeople and they, these doctors, they need to push chemo on you. That, that's their job but because doctors don't study health. Doctors study medicine. And this is one thing I proclaim, and this is one thing that I repeat over and over again. Doctors do not study health. They study medicine. That's right. So if doctors are telling you that you're not going to live, well, hey, you prove them wrong. You do what I do, and you prove them wrong. Dee, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much. And you too. Thank you, Tim. Thank you so much, Dee. Thank you, Corey. And thank you for having me as well. At Cannabis Health Radio, we'd like our listeners to share our podcasts on their social media platforms so we can get the message out uh, on the medical use of cannabis. And if you'd like to donate to Cannabis Health Radio, you can do so by going on our website and hit the donate icon. Or you can go to Patreon and uh, for the price of one cup of coffee a month, just one cup of coffee a month, you can donate as little as $5 a month to Cannabis Health Radio and we'd greatly appreciate it. And we'd like to thank Ron Zahr, our producer, for producing the podcast, and also Mark in Belgium, who posts our podcasts on YouTube. We greatly appreciate both of their work, and we thank them very much. 
And we thank you for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Thanks for listening to Cannabis Health Radio. For more information and to search previous podcasts, visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com. Subscribe so you don't miss new episodes. And follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. This podcast is made possible by donations from our listeners. If you found the information helpful, please consider making a donation in any amount through our website. You can also help us share our message by leaving a review on your podcast listening platform. We are very grateful for your support. Thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.